Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hello, Mighty Parents. This is Dr. Zimmerman, Anna, and I am bringing you our very last podcast episode for the year 2020. I cannot believe that I started this podcast in March and have had so much growth from it. And I'm just incredibly grateful to everyone who's listening and everyone who supported me. I wanted to actually take a moment to read a couple of excerpts from a thank you letter that I got from a family recently that really drives home why I do what I do and what I'm hoping to accomplish by having this podcast out there and having these stories out there. The thank you letter says, Dear Dr. Zimmerman, I really enjoyed having you as our doctor. Um, I always felt like we had your undivided attention when you were with us. And the fact that you took the time to sit down and talk with me at length made me feel so valued and comfortable by in, in an impossibly uncomfortable situation. The letter goes on to say that she's been listening to the podcast since they were on level four. I remember a specific time where I was driving home from the hospital feeling really down. And so it had been a while since I listened to the podcast. And so I remember getting lost in a story and speaking out loud, me too, or I have that same feeling. Her thank you note goes on to say, when you are surrounded by friends and family who do not understand what you are going through, having a community and podcast who does instantly brought me relief and clarity. That is why I'm doing this podcast. That sums it up right there. Only people who have been in the NICU, whether that's a NICU nurse, a NICU family, a NICU physician, only people who have been in the NICU can really understand what it's like to be in the NICU. And that is what I want this podcast to bring. So to this mom who wrote me this thank you letter, I just have to say thank you. This podcast has been a work of love for me and I absolutely love doing it. And I'm so glad that it is giving people the comfort and community that I was hoping that it would bring to people. That was the ultimate goal and I am beginning to succeed at that. And that's very exciting to me. Like I mentioned, this will be the last podcast coming out in 2020. I will be taking a break over Christmas and New Year's. Um, and then we will be coming back at you in 2021. I am excited because I have a list of collaborations that I will be bringing to the podcast from NICU families to therapists to other NICU physicians. We're going to focus on language in the month of January, and that will include kind of the language around disability. It's going to include stuff about the language of how we talk about the NICU, and it's also going to include some baby sign language for people that are kind of trying to bridge from being in the NICU to being at home. 
Uh, that's one of the things that I'll be bringing in 2021. And I have a couple other collaborations as well as a bunch of education coming your way as well. I really hope that you guys are enjoying this podcast as much as I'm making it. Please share it with other NICU families, share it with the units that you were in, because I do think that this can be really beneficial. If you're enjoying it, rate us, leave a review. If you have suggestions or feedback for how I can make it better, I would love for you to send me emails. You can find them Find the emails on my website, www.mightylittles.com, or you can just drop me an email, Anna, A-N-N-A, at mightylittles.com, and I always reply. If you are interested in submitting photos or sharing your story for me to be able to use on the podcast or in some of my NICU education or in the book that will be coming out in 2021... Uh, again, just email me. I will get back to you. So without further ado, now that I've kind of wrapped up 2020 and given you an idea of what we're going to be looking forward to in 2021, we will go ahead and jump into this episode with Abigail and her story about delivering her triplets at 24 weeks. I hope you all have really, really merry holidays and I will see you in 2021. Hi, Mighty Littles listeners. This is Anna, and I am super excited today to have Abigail Burley on the podcast for our family spotlight for this month. She has three and a half year old triplets that were born at 24 weeks. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Why don't we just start off by having you kind of introduce yourself and introduce your family and talk about your journey into motherhood? Okay. Um, my journey into motherhood, I tell people, I think it started when I was 12 because I was the oldest of four, but uh, to spare y'all time, I won't start there. But uh, my husband and I had been married and in 2015, we had decided that we thought we were ready for a family. And so we started the old trying game and uh, just weren't having much luck. And after about a year, um, I ended up talking to a friend that happens to be at OBGYN. And she's like, why don't you just come in and get some blood work done? So came in and turns out that I, at that point in time, they could not figure out if I was even ovulating. So we knew our journey was going to be a little different. Um, we didn't know exactly what it would look like. Um, so I ended up going for another seven to eight months um, to track my blood work every month to go in. And in those seven to eight months, I never ovulated. So they're like, we can continue down this road to see if you're a person that ovulates very regularly, or we can go ahead and take our next step. And I think at that point for us, we were like, we're ready to take our next step. So um, our OBGYN recommended um, our first step to be a drug called Clomid. It's just a prescription pill. And um, they're like, it's not going to work, but, you know, we'll just we'll just give it the old college try. So um, I did one dose of Clomid and uh woke up one morning and was like, my boobs are hurting. I think I'm pregnant. And so I went to the Dollar Tree, the old trusty Dollar Tree, and I bought me a couple pregnancy tests and turns out I was pregnant. Um, and so we go in to the OGYN's office a couple of weeks later and uh, laying down for the ultrasound. And, you know, we're so excited. My husband took off work and the woman's doing the vaginal ultrasound and she starts it and she pulls it immediately away. And she says, um, did you, did you do fertility? And I was like, at that point in time, I was like, 
did I do fertility? I'm not sure. Is Clomid fertility? I think so. Like, you know, I didn't even know because I, in my mind, I was thinking IUI, IVF is kind of where she was going. I was like, I guess Clomid's, you know? So she's like, I think y'all need to brace yourself. And so uh, she started back the ultrasound and, and she was like, baby A's heartbeat, baby B's heartbeat, baby C's heartbeat. And at that point I was like, I hope you're stopping. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and my husband and I both just honestly hysterically lost it. And um, I had to be pulled out of the ultrasound room. It took them about an hour and a half to get me calmed down to be able to go back and, um, and start it. And so I really kind of started my mothering journey, like feeling like, oh, this number one might never happen for me. Like, you know, I might not be able to carry my own kids. And, and I, I had kind of started to grieve that. And then number two of, oh my gosh, I've now gotten what I prayed for. Now, what do I do? Because this isn't what I prayed for. Right. I don't want three. Yeah. Um, and so just really felt like I started my mothering journey, just feeling like it was already becoming a mom of one, your life changes. Becoming a mom of three at one time is, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Like our life will never look the same. Um, and so, you know, then it was because our pregnancy, because triplets is high risk, it's you almost don't even, doctors almost don't even allow you to enjoy the pregnancy because it's. I had to go in for ultrasounds every week and I, you know, they're checking all of this stuff and I'm like, just feel poked and prodded all the time. So, um, yeah, my mothering journey in the beginning was pretty, uh, honestly, I just felt just desperate and pissed. It, it, and it's true. Your description of you don't even really have an op- opportunity to enjoy mm-hmm. your pregnancy because mm-hmm. it, you, you, it is so high risk. Triplets are really high risk pregnancies and, in order to try to get the pregnancy to go as far as possible, you kind of are poked and prodded and followed. And it's it's not this blissful pregnancy of, hey, I get to plan my baby shower and I get to put my feet up. No. It's not like that at all. You know, I, I, I did not know this, and I don't know if some of your listeners might not know this. You know, if you are carrying more than twins, so if you're carrying triplets and above, they're considered high ordered multiples and our first specialist appointment. So at that point I was 11 weeks and two days at that point, when I went to our high risk doctor, we had to sign, we had to sit through a whole talk of him talking about what selective reduction is and about how he recommended selective reduction. For those of you who don't know what selective reduction is, it truly means choosing to end carrying one of the babies so that one or two of them would be able to stay in the womb longer. And so we had to sign, we chose not to do selective reduction. Obviously we had to sign all this paperwork. So, I mean, only 11 weeks into my pregnancy, you know, we're not getting past the 12 week mark, you know, and it's like, I'm already having to sign all of these papers saying we're choosing to try to carry all of them, you know, and it it was just very eye opening to me. Right. Well, and I think it's such a really difficult decision. I had a patient one time that I took care of that, well, I took care of the babies that did IVF and they put in two embryos. When you put an embryo in with IVF, there's a 1% chance that it will split and they put in two and both split. So now she had quads and Mm -hmm. In that situation, based on how the babies were, if they were going to do selective reduction, they would have had to reduce two 
just because they were together and they opted to carry the quads. But it was when she described it, and and I don't want to talk too much for her experience, but when she described it, she talked about how she felt like she was in a no-win situation. Reducing Mm -hmm. to felt like it was not an option and carrying quads felt like that was not an option. And how do you choose between two options that feel wrong um and and there's no I mean these are just such hard decisions to make and everything plays into it how old are you how young are you how much money did you spend to get pregnant do you have the Mm -hmm. resources and the flexibility in your life to spend time in the NICU when you deliver your babies early because with the higher order multiples you will deliver your babies early you know, how many other kids do you have? Like, there's, what are your yeah. religious beliefs? What are your spiritual beliefs? What do yes. your family think? There are so many things that go into that decision that yes. nobody, I, I, I fall back on, nobody can actually know what they will do until they no. are in that situation. Because you might think, well, if I was in that situation, I would X, Y, and Z. But I don't actually know what I would do because I'm not in that situation. And none of us can tell somebody else what is the right decision for their particular circumstances. A hundred percent. And I think after, you know, just being only 11 weeks pregnant, when we had that first hard conversation, it was in that time that my husband and I just kind of said like, hey, and like you said, like, it's basically guaranteed I'm going to deliver early. And our high risk doctor really was like, hey, I really think you're looking great to get to 33 weeks was was kind of what they were telling me. You know, I was in great shape before I got pregnant. I don't have any health risks. I have great health insurance. Like I'm taking care of myself, you know, all this stuff. And, um, but it was in that time where we just said like, we're going to have to start making really hard decisions our entire pregnancy and for these three babies. So what is going to be our initial response? And we had kind of just spent some time talking together and we just said our initial response is going to be, if we're not forced to make the decision, we're going to try to let, for a lack of a better word, nature run its course, meaning I'm not going to make the decision to do selective reduction. If we do lose one, carrying one, then that is that is what happened and we will move forward with that. But I don't know if I just, I know my personality and obviously my beliefs as well that I didn't feel like it was up to me to make that decision in that moment. And I, you know, a lot of people ask me like, well, now, now y'all story, do you wish you would have done selective reduction? Like I've had people ask me that now. And I'm like, honestly, I think if I could go back to that conversation of that high-risk doctor, I wish I would have listened more carefully about the risk. I do not think it would have changed my decision, but I do think I would have been more cautious. And I don't think anything I did forced me to go into labor, but I do think I would have maybe been a little just more understanding of the actual risk of the pregnancy I was carrying. Right. Yeah. I can see that. I think, you know, we do consults and all the time on high-risk pregnancies. And mm-hmm. so, you know, one particular one is something called a diaphragmatic hernia, where the bowel is actually up in the chest. And those babies are really difficult. It's really difficult to say prenatally how your baby's going to do after they're born. And mm-hmm. so you counsel what all the possibilities are. And same mm-hmm. thing for a multiple pregnancy, right? Like, so I have to counsel, you might deliver 
at 19 weeks, you might deliver at 24 weeks, you might deliver at 30 weeks. And these are this is what all the options are. And universally, mm-hmm. parents that are in the NICU who have had those consults say, well, I know that the doctors told me that this was possible, but I just didn't believe that I would be the yeah. one that was in this circumstance. I wouldn't be the one that delivered yeah. my triplets at 24 weeks. You, like universally, parents err on the side of positivity. And that's great. Mm-hmm. That's how you get through the pregnancy. If you always are focused on the negative, yeah. you won't even get through. But I still think it's important for people to hear that message that you have to listen to these consults because you might be in the situation where where you wish you would have known a little bit more before it happened. Agreed. And I didn't know anybody with triplets, nor had I ever personally met anyone with babies born at 24 weeks. So Lord, did I know, I did not know anything what I was about to get myself into. Why don't we talk about when you went into labor, how much warning did you have that these babies were coming early and what did your delivery kind of look like for you? Yes. Um, Okay, so I went to work. I was a teacher before kids, taught middle school math. Middle schoolers are my jam, man. So um, I was 23 weeks and two days, and I went into my high-risk doctor, and I was just chatting with him, you know, and he was doing the ultrasound and all this stuff, and he was like, I'm going to check your cervix, which they had been doing, you know. I was like, okay, you know, he checks my cervix, and um, my husband actually didn't come with me to that one. This, this is an important part of the story. My friend Morgan was with me, who actually ends up being one of my best friends, who is my OBGYN, who initially got me in all of, like, uh, started with um, ba- the babies. So she, he's doing the ultrasound, and um, he finishes it, and he looks at me and goes, okay, so um, you're in labor. And I said, wait, what? And he said, you're in labor. And I said, I, okay, I like, I still couldn't process what was happening. And he was like, you're going to go to the hospital right now. And I still wasn't getting it. Cause I looked at him. I was like, okay, well, can I go home and like pack a bag? He goes, no, 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 You're going to the hospital. Um, and so my friend Morgan luckily has rights at the hospital where we were headed. And so she like calls ahead of time and goes ahead and gets them a room. And like, we go in the back door, you know, and we get there and they hook me up to all these monitors and all these people are coming in and out. And at this point, I am not emotionally faced. I'm like, okay, they're going to hook me up to a bunch of monitors. They'll give me some medicine. I'll go home. You know, it'll all be dead. So they hook me up. Well, my contractions are a minute apart. Um, at this point, I think when I lay down in bed and actually allow my body to like rest, I then start to feel, oh my gosh, my body is responding in, in a labor form. I think I was just so just caught off guard anyway um so our our hospital um honestly kind of took a risk in allowing uh the amount of interventions they allowed um for my husband and I to do um our hospital hasn't always um done that um, so I was at 23-2 in full-blown labor. So they decided that if we were okay with it, that they would start me on alternating and rotating magnesium. Um, so I did that on and off for 11 days. Um, and at 11 days, and during those 11 days, I am an Enneagram one. And for those of you who don't know, know what that is, that is like a perfectionist. And I remember looking at the OBGYN being like, how can I be the 
best bed recitation. Like, how can I be, you know, like I wanted to do everything just right, not lift a finger. Um, and so like, that's what I did. I did not get out of the bed for 11 days, just laid there, just hoping and praying and trying not to pee myself. Um, so at 24 weeks, when I made it to 24 weeks, it was on mother's day and my contractions had kind of spaced out a little bit and I had been off magnesium for 24 hours and the OBGYN was like, you know what, why don't you get up, take a shower, get in the wheelchair, go out in the garden and come back, just take it easy. But you know, and so I did, and I, I felt just so tired, so tired. Um, and then the next morning I woke up and was eating lunch with my dad and got up to use the bathroom because I'd been cleared to get up at that point because I'd made it to 24 weeks, which was the first goal. Um, and saw blood in my urine. And so we called the doctor and the doctor came and checked me and I was nine centimeters dilated, had no idea, couldn't feel it, wasn't in pain. Um, and he just, I, re, I will never remember Dr. Martin just came up from my gown. He looked at me so calmly and goes, we're having these babies now. You need to call your husband and just so calmly, which calmed me. Yeah. And so I called my husband and luckily my husband had left work about 10 minutes ago, just by himself to come and check on me while I was on bed rest. And if he had not done that, he would have not made it. So obviously I'm signing all these papers while they're willing me to the OR room. We get to the OR room and I have a C-section. Um, there were 19 people in the delivery room. I mean, it was a, it was a whirlwind. I was throwing up during it. I mean, it was, <laughs> wasn't pretty. Was there ever any discussion about if you delivered your babies before 24 weeks, what you would do? This is where I tell people all the time, I need to have another conversation with some of our doctors because, you know, your mind is just during those 11 days, just so scattered. The way that I have been retold the conversation and remember being told the conversation is that our hospital would not intervene before 24 weeks unless they saw that the babies were trying to continue life. Okay. So for us, Ryan and I would have had to make the decision before 24 weeks, whether we wanted that or not. Yeah. So it's interesting because things continue to change around the country. And this is what we call that kind of limit of viability. These, mm. the other word that you hear is peri viable babies. And yes. it, it's, um, the numbers are very, very complicated because there's so few babies that are born at 22 and 23 weeks. And 15 years ago, the data was so bad and the outcomes were so poor um, mm -hmm. that there wasn't a lot of offering of resuscitation at 22 and 23 weeks. But mm -hmm. like everything in medicine, there's some variability in terms of what your dates might be. Like, you don't know exactly Agreed. what day you ovulated. So are you 24 and zero or are you 23 and five? And are you really willing to hang your hat on that 48 hours? And so what ends up happening is that parents and doctors have to have conversations about this is when we're willing mm -hmm. to give the beta methasone. And this is when we're willing to try. Yeah. And again, there's so much information and so much personal 
experience and belief that goes into that decision, that there's not one right decision. I have had parents decide not to intervene at 22 weeks because they have four older children and it would impact their family to such a degree that they don't want to put their baby through that. They don't have the financial resources. They don't want to impact their older children. And I've had other people who have been trying to get pregnant for years and years and years, and this is the farthest they've ever gotten. Please, 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 will you try at 22 and 6? I'm only one day shy of that mark, and my baby's Mm -hmm. over a pound. Please, 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 will you try? And and so it's really difficult for anybody to make judgments on anybody else's decisions because there's so much that goes into it. And I, I think for our hospital, the discussion was, sure, I made it 24 weeks, but it's triplets. Like, what does that really mean for a 24-weeker with a triplet pregnancy? And then, you know, kind of what you were saying about the 22, 23-week mark, you know, when I went into labor at 22 and 3 and I'm laying on bed rest, all of these people are telling me all of these statistics of, you know, all three of them are, all three of them are going to be severely disabled. All three of them could be born blind and deaf. All three of them, you know, you're hearing all these things and you're just like, and I know, I know it has to be told to me, you know, but it's like, you're just sitting there. You're like, oh my gosh, am I making the right decision? Like, am I being selfish at this point? Like, just cause I want to, you know, I don't know. You're right. There's no right answer. and, And I think it's, I think that that is where it's really important that you trust your hospital and you and you trust you and your spouse or who you and ever you're in it with to say, we're going to make the best decision for our family and our hospital. And we're going to, at the end of the day, be confident with that decision and move on. Right. Absolutely. So these babies are born by C-section with tons of people in the room and they get whisked over to the NICU and... They have their breathing tubes in and they get their lines in. Why don't we talk about overall the NICU stay? All three of the babies were actually born the same minute. Um, So that's kind of a fun fact. Um, None of them made a sound. And so the OR got really, really quiet, even though there were 19, 20, 21 with my husband and I in it. Um, I just remembered it just being really quiet. And Ryan, my husband looked at me and said, do you want me to stay in here with you in the OR or do you want me to go down to the NICU with the babies? And I just remember clearly saying, like, I don't want them to die alone. I want you to go down to the NICU because at that point, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't know. So they go down to the NICU. Um, Luckily, our NICU has individual rooms. So all three of their babies were in an individual room. Um, They all were started on traditional vents. Um, We have Maggie, who is our baby A. We have Max, who is our baby B. And we have Miller, who is our baby C. All of them ranging in weights from one pound, six ounces to one pound, nine ounces. So good good size for 24 weeks and triplets. Like those are good good size babies. Good size babies uh, to the point where it's probably the first... 12 hours our neonatologist was like um maybe I don't know they're looking maybe more like 26 weekers we 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 could be in a good space here you know um and then he jokes 24 hours later he's like no no they're 24 weekers they're 24 weekers just because they started uh acting like 24 weekers yeah their honeymoon was over and they were they were misbehaving yes yes they were 
Um, and so I kind of tell people, our baby A, Maggie, I, I don't want to diminish her NICU stay, but it was a pretty typical 24-weeker NICU stay. Uh, Vince, she did go on the oscillator for probably about a week. Um, she had E. coli, blood transfusions. Um, she did receive two rounds of DART protocol. Her biggest man setback in the NICU was bradycardias. We just, I mean, even towards the end, she had been completely bottle fed for almost three weeks and still, they still couldn't get her bradycardias under, under control. Um, and we had decided as parents to keep her in the NICU longer instead of taking her home on a heart rate monitor because the boys were still in the NICU. So it's like, I don't want one at home. It's like, I just rather let's all be in the same place. So Maggie's stay was pretty, I, if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, wow, it sounds like she just laid there and grew. That is not her story. For a 24-weeker, it was pretty smooth sailing. She had no surgeries, no procedures, anything like that. So doesn't make it any easier. Doesn't mean there's still good days and bad days and good oh. hours and bad hours. I mean, when you listed off, well, she had had A's and B's. Those can be scary. She was on an oscillator. That's not just yes. a routine ventilator. So that tells no. me that her lungs were sick. And then she got DART, which is a steroid course of dexamethasone to improve yes. her lungs so that the breathing tube can come out or she can wean off of pressure. So she had pretty yes. significant lung disease. What we would expect sometimes in a 24-week baby, but no major yes. huge setbacks. Um, our baby Steve Miller, uh, we called him in the NICU, mover and shaker, and boy, at three and a half, he's still living up to his name. He was one of the babies in the NICU they just couldn't figure out. He never responded typically. Nothing they did seemed to make it better. Um and so he was our kid who just like would be on the max settings for days on the oscillator and would still be sat in it like 87 and they still couldn't get it up. And they're like, we're like, we've run every test. We've done everything, you know, there's, there's no reason. Um, and I feel like that was a lot of Miller's NICU journey was like just them saying us getting phone calls in the middle of the night, like, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's having a really bad night. Y'all need to come in. Y'all need to come in. And then we get there and then he not improve, but just plateau enough for them to be like, okay, we're not, we're, we're, you know, critically stable now, you know? Yeah. And, um, um, Miller did have a PDA. Um, luckily it did close with a round of Indison. Um, you know, he also obviously had oscillator time. Uh, he was on and off the vent to oscillator more than they wanted that to happen. And because he was just a kid, they couldn't figure out, like I said, um, he also had two blood infections and the, he had a procedure uh, for ROP. He had stage three and had the uh, Avastin ejections in both of his eyes. Okay. Um, and he did have to get transferred down to Atlanta for that. But luckily he was stable after 48 hours and got to be transferred back. Miller's biggest setback in the end was him never following the typical pattern of any procedure or baby or response. So it was them constantly being on their toes. Um, and then our baby Max, we had been down there in the NICU for about 24 hours. Um, and I had gone back up into my room. Um, I got to stay at our hospital for five days, which was really nice. 
I had gone back up into our room and we get a knock on the door about 2 a.m. And it's our neonatologist. And he says, hey, um, y'all can't come down right now. Um, but we've, we've, we have all irons in the fire with Max is, is the wording he used. Um, when we feel like it is a quote unquote safe, which there was no safe time to go down there, but a quote unquote safer time for y'all to come down here. We want you to come down and we, we need to, we need to have a hard conversation. So, um, he didn't give us a ton of information at that point. And so we just laid in our bed and we were just like crying, you know, I'm like, I haven't even seen his face yet. You know, I mean, the first 12 hours, they won't even barely even let you open up, you know, the, the Ocelet covers. Um, Cause there's just so many people in and out and they're just trying to get them, you know, situated. So um, we ended up getting to go down there. Turns out he had um, two collapsed lungs and they had to end up inserting three chest tubes um, which later we found out ended up causing a bilateral, uh, a bilateral grade three brain bleed. With the chest tubes, he became, I'm going to use the word septic. It did not turn into sepsis, but it was his, he looked solid black. His skin was leaking fluid. I mean, it was, you know, the nitric oxide was out. I mean, you know, every tool our NICU had was was in that baby's isolate. They had a hard conversation with us of like what we, you know, what we wanted to do with, with Max and with his care and kind of what my husband had, I had said from the beginning of this journey of like, I just don't, unless I absolutely am backed into a corner, I do not want the decision to be up to me. And we had just said, we're going to give it 48 hours. If Max's body decides to pass, Max's body passes. Um, if it doesn't at the end of 48 hours, we'll kind of circle back around and, you know, um, kind of see where we are. So the first really two and a half weeks with Max was us getting calls throughout the night constantly, us not knowing, you know, if he was going to make it. Um, and I will never forget. So we were born 24 weeks. I'll never forget when we made it to 31 weeks. So we were seven weeks in the NICU at that point. Uh, Max was still on event, um, but I remember our neonatologist looking at me and like grabbing my face, and he's like, "I need you to hear this. Max is not dying anymore." And it was like the first time as a parent, I never thought the words hearing my kid is not dying anymore. I never thought I'd hear those words and experience relief, and I did. It was like this big sigh. He's like, we're not out of the woods, but you need to take a breath. Like we've made it seven weeks. You know, we haven't had any more setbacks, that kind of thing. So um, it was, yeah, I'm glad he did that. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's hard because by definition, babies in the NICU who are on a ventilator are critically ill. But we have babies that stay in the NICU for prolonged periods of time on a ventilator critically ill. And so there becomes this distinction between your baby is stable but critically ill or your baby is unstable but critically ill. And the line between that stable and unstable, you can cross over it on an hourly basis, um, which seems a little bit funny. But, you know, I think sometimes parents 
we'll we'll say for an update. Well, Max is doing great today. He's stable on his settings and we're on the same amount mm-hmm. of pressers and we still can't mm-hmm. feed him, but you know, no big changes, right? So he's stable. But in all honesty, he's actually really, really sick. But we're yes. we just can't with with premature babies, you just don't change things very fast. It you know, slow yes. and steady wins this race. And so for parents who kind of get used to their baby being in this very unstable place, it's hard to know where that line between critically stable and critically unstable really is. So I can imagine that the neonatologist saying that was was a huge relief to say, hey, he's not dying. He's just critically stable. He's on a vent. We still have a long way to go, but you can take a deep breath. I'm not worried that I'm going to have to call you in the middle of the night anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. And um, Max's biggest setback was just oxygen. He was on oxygen for 72 hours before we left the NICU. Um, I mean, just he could not. And, and now knowing our journey at three and a half, I mean, we were, you know, we were three and we were on oxygen for 42 days, you know? So it's like, Oh, okay. This is going to be like a thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of people, uh, you might not know this, but we, when they told us about Max's brain bleed in the NICU, you know, they sit us down, they tell us, and they're like, Oh, this could mean that he has cerebral palsy. And I just remember crying because the only thing I knew about cerebral palsy was a kid I knew in college who was nonverbal in a wheelchair, quadriplegic. Like that's, that's the only image I had in my head. And, um, and she was like, we can't waste time on this diagnosis. Like we can't waste time thinking about this. That is not our biggest concern at this point. Our biggest concern is getting, like getting him to stay alive. And it was in that moment, I'm like, how can we not be concerned that he might possibly be in a wheelchair, you know? And she was like, cause we're not there yet, you know? And it was just like, it was even this moment for me that a lot of things in the NICU, I think so many parents have so much grief and processing that happens after the NICU because of conversations like that, because in that moment, she's right. I couldn't start worrying about the quality of Max's life. We were just trying to get him to the next hour, you know? And so then you get home and and then it's a whole nother story of like, starting to replay those conversations and, and grieving in the anger that, you know, that comes with honestly, this journey, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Well, I, and I think for a lot of parents, there's this magic day of discharge day, right? And so if we just get through this NICU stay and we just get to that discharge day, my kids have to be on low enough oxygen and eating or have a feeding tube to have good nutrition. And we just have to get to that discharge day. And then I can put the NICU behind me and a hundred percent. And then I'll just go home with a normal baby. Right. And then I just go home with my baby and everything is fine. And I think that in all honesty, my, my twins were not in the NICU, right? I, Mm -hmm. I cannot speak about the NICU from a parental standpoint other than I live my life in the NICU as a physician and I watch parents go through this journey, which is why I started the podcast because I think so so many people think, well, I just go get to my discharge day and then, and then I'm good. But it's once you get home that all the processing happens, that all the questions come back up, that all the replaying of 
the beeps and the conversations and the moments that you walk in where there's five people around your baby's bed. Or let's say you have a 32-week baby who, from my standpoint as a neonatologist, had a super unremarkable NICU course. But in your head, you remember the time that you walked in and your nurse wouldn't let you touch your baby that one time because Mm -hmm. of whatever reason. And, And that becomes so traumatic and then you still have to manage kids at home in the first year with medical problems and you're still processing what happens through the NICU so I'm so glad you brought up the fact that you once you got home you were replaying some of that because I think that's very normal for NICU parents to go through and and I don't know that we always realize it or talk about it while we're in the NICU, hey, this journey is going to stick with you and you're still going to have stuff that comes up after you go home. Yeah. Oh, yes, for sure. And, um, you know, we were um, all three of our kids this 2019 December and 2020 January uh, were in the PICU at Scottish Rite with RSV, coronavirus and pneumonia. And Max ended up coming home on oxygen and was on home oxygen for another 42 days. And it was in that time where it was just like, even three years out, I was sitting in that picky room, just, I I mean, dry heaving because I'm having what felt like a lot of the same similar conversations. You know, I have a three-year-old that is on 22 liters of oxygen and they're telling me they're about to put him on a vent. You know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're, we're in your mind. And I know it sounds crazy, but I know a lot of parents will relate to this. My mind goes from all the way back to that first night we had with those conversations with Max. And I know it sounds unreasonable, but it literally, there's nowhere in between. And it's, it's really hard to talk yourself down when you've been through conversation after conversation after conversation, not about one of your kids, not about two, but all three of your kids being like, are they going to live to the next hour? What did you and your husband do to manage that turbulence in the NICU, right? Like, so people call yes. it a roller coaster. People call it two steps forward, one step back. But I feel like it's more like turbulence where you're kind of smooth sailing and then you like the airplane just falls out from underneath you. Yes. Um, what did you guys do to help you manage that turbulence? Yes. I'm glad you mentioned the roller coaster for a minute because I tell people all the time, when we were the March of Dimes ambassadors and we went around and spoke, please stop saying the NICU is a roller coaster. A roller coaster, you can see it. The ride ends. You choose your seat. You signed up for it. Like, no, none of that is true about the NICU stay. I did not sign up for it. I am not waiting in line for it. I do not know what is ahead. I do not know when it's going to end. So thank you for saying that. My husband and I were really, really fortunate that our NICU probably within 72 hours set us down and said, hey, We are not trying to scare y'all, but really we have seen marriages just crumble after experiences like this. Um, And you have this time story, like y'all's relationship needs to be a top priority, which I know is hard to hear when you have three babies who are dying, but your relationship needs to be a top priority. So we had a really good family friend who actually ended up gifting us one hour a week of marriage counseling while we were in the NICU. Oh, what a phenomenal gift. Yes, yes. Um, We still see him today. Uh, We see him every other week. Um, And it was just a safe place for us to talk through decisions that maybe even to this day that my parents, even though they were down the NICU every day, don't know we had to make just because 
I don't necessarily want another person's opinion. We had to make our decisions and we move forward. Um, and so it's a space for Ryan and I, and I will tell you, every single person deals with grief differently. And we were so thankful that we had a safe place to go and talk because the, the first instance that pops up in my head, uh, um, my husband was, um, I mean, sorry, Maggie was about to be transferred to be held. And when they were, uh, when she was being transferred, um, she ended up uh, coding. They had a bagger. It, it was a whole situation. Well, I wasn't the one about to hold. So I like ran out of the room. I thought I was going to throw up. I, you know, I was, I was getting very emotional. My husband stayed in the room and, you know, we went home, had dinner, you know, and I know it sounds like we just went back to being normal, but that was kind of a normal day in the NICU, you know? So um, the next day in marriage counseling, my husband brought it up and he said, you abandoned Maggie when you walked out of that room. Like when we said we were going to be parents, we're not leaving our kids. And it was in that moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, he took that as me abandoning my child. Like that was, that was obviously not my intention, but marriage counseling gave us safe places to have those conversations of like, allowing each other to do what we need to do in this season because there's there's no roadmap and no one's doing it right so it's more about just allowing each other to take the road that you need to take and encourage each other along the way um and so that that's one of the conversations that really sticks out in my head but yeah we're we're fortunate in a sense of where it takes a lot of work yeah well and i think it's it's really helpful for people to hear other families and other couples be willing to say, hey, this was actually really helpful. And if only mm-hmm. because you can say things in this safe place with a third party who can help you navigate the emotions. Because I can imagine mm-hmm. if my husband said, hey, you're abandoning our baby. If you mm-hmm. didn't have a third person in the room, your immediate reaction is, no, I didn't. That's not what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have that third person in the room, you can listen and then you can yeah. calmly say why this was my action. That was not what I was intending. That's not what I meant. And it it be, you can actually have a productive conversation around it because you mm-hmm. have the third party person in the room, I don't know what it is about that third party, but it makes all the difference in the yeah. world that now mm-hmm. your relationship does not become escalated on miscommunication or unintended consequences, right? Like that wasn't your intended yeah. consequence was for him to feel that way. So, and obviously I don't want to speak for my husband, but I know he wouldn't mind me sharing this. My husband has a lot of hurt from the NICU, from his experience, because everything is targeted towards the mom. Everything is about bonding with the mom. Everything is about getting me to produce breast milk. Everything is about, you know, I'm the one making the decision because he has to go to work. And I can't, I can't, there's just some conversations that you don't have the time to call. And, you know, we've had to work through a lot of that, of him feeling like the Nikki wasn't designed for him and he wasn't included in it. I think that's a super valid point that mm-hmm. the moms are on maternity leave. They carried the babies. They're producing the milk. And there is a bias mm-hmm. towards, I mean, I'll be honest, when first hold comes around, 
I strongly believe moms get to hold first. They carried the babies. They pushed the babies out. It's their body that's healing. It helps with their breast milk. They get to hold first. Not for five weeks, just for one hold. And then dad can hold the second hold, right? But there's... There are some biases towards the mom. I'll put it in the um, show notes and link it on the website. But there is a dad that writes a dad-specific NICU blog from the perspective of the dad. And I I really want to get him on the podcast, too. So I'm going to be working towards that Um, Mm -hmm. to talk to him. I think... I don't know. I don't know whether he's in the United States or not, but he writes from the perspective of the dad. And I think it's very, very helpful. And my message to dads, if you are listening to this podcast is please don't take my Mm -hmm. actions as pro mom or anti dad. Um, I love when dads are present in the NICU. I've done a couple podcasts where both mom and dad were on the show, which obviously you have your three kids at home. You can't do that right now. Yeah. Um, and and we want dads to be included, but there it, it is more difficult because oftentimes they are back at work and the moms are yeah. the face of the parenting that happens yes. in the NICU. Yes, and, and, and I think my husband got more hurt because, I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to slam any other dads down there, but out of all the dads down there, he was down there the most, you know, he wasn't even, he was present and still felt, you know? Right. So. Yeah. yeah. That I, I think the NICU is a, is a hard place to navigate and it's hard for moms and hard for dads. And there's a lot of stuff that happens really quickly and feelings can get hurt and it's never anybody's intention. It just mm-hmm. happens. You know, looking back, aside from the obvious of being afraid that you weren't going to take your babies home because of all the ups and downs of the initial part, what do you think you were most afraid of while you were in the NICU? I am a very community-minded person. Like, I love having people over. I love going over people's house. We're very social people. And our NICU only allowed four people to ever see our kids the entire five and a half months we were down there. And then we come home and it's late October and they scare you to death about RSV, which they should. So for a year, my grandparents never met my kids, you know, um, some of my best friends, like my best, best friend got to meet them. But like a lot of my best friends that live here didn't get to meet them. Like they would come and like wave at the window, you know? And it felt so enduring in the NICU. It felt so like I was going to lives. I'm like, I have three babies that are in three individual rooms. They didn't even get to spend time together, you know? I'm not even getting spending time together with all my babies at the same time. I have all of these people that love my babies and love me, but they're not getting to meet them. It was a very weird and hard. I almost felt like I was living in two different lives for about the first year. Yeah, I can see that. What were, what do you think were your biggest wins while you guys were in the NICU? I think I have two in mind. The best moment for me mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, like for myself in growth was I remember when we were about two months into our NICU stay, um, Maggie Miller at this point, we're trying to get off the vent. Max was still on the vent. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I will love Maggie. And then filled in every fear I've ever had about 
kids and about our stuff. Like I will love Maggie, even if you name it, like I'm talking, I said scary stuff. I will love Max, even if I'll love Miller, even if, and that for me was such an emotional release of like, I'm going to be able to love my kids. Um, that was a win for me. Yeah. Um, and then I think another just like sweet moment, um, that honestly, I don't think I'll ever forget was when the babies, I mean, they were already five months old. So, you know, the, the NICU nurses were getting bored with the babies just laying in the bed. They're like, sir, you know, we want to play with them, you know, and, um, one of our neonatologists, I hope you're not listening to this, but one of the, one of the funner neonates was on one night and, um, uh, she was like, listen, these babies are stable. Let's five minutes, put them in a stroller and you push them up and down the hallway. Just it to feel like a mom, you know, and I never knew <laughs> pushing a baby in a stroller for five minutes down the hallway with all of their tubes off. Not, I mean, they left the tubes on but just for five minutes just made me so happy. It just felt so normal. like a normal thing I'd be doing with my babies. Yeah, no, that's a great moment. If you could give yourself advice now at the beginning of your NICU journey, what would you have told yourself? Which then translates into moms who are in the NICU, who are listening to this, who are at the beginning of their journey, hearing hearing that advice that you would give to yourself. You can do hard things. That is what I would tell myself. That is what I would tell other families. Like, you can do hard things. And I don't mean it in like a flippant way of meaning it's going to be easy or that you're going to love it or like it. I mean it in a way of like, you can and you will do the hard thing that is required of you in that moment. Um, and at some point, you're going to find yourself still standing. What advice do you have for people that are bringing home two or more babies? Mm-hmm. I can give you my advice. So from a twin yes. standpoint, yes, babies eat at the same time. So yes. when one baby wakes up, you feed both or all. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes they wake up at the same time. Sometimes they don't, but you always feed them at the same time. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to be you're feeding both babies at the same time. You can feed one and then the next one. And that's a Mm -hmm. longer feeding session. But sometimes you need that. Just I want Mm -hmm. to feed one baby at a time. But you do not let one baby sleep through a feeding ever because you have totally screwed yourself for at least 48 hours. And Trust me on this, you guys. Babies eat at the same time, always. Agreed. Our NICU is really amazing. And probably like two months before we came home, they started getting the babies on the same care times um, so that we could go home and all eat. Like we're all eating at nine. We're all eating at 12. We're all eating. um, And so, yeah, I would feed two at once and then the third one separate. Max required um, special care when feeding. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I think my biggest advice is do not be afraid to ask for help. Like no one is expecting you to come home and have this all figured out or um, I mean, no one is. And so take the help. If someone texts you and says, Hey, I'm thinking of you. What could I do? Be honest. Say, come cut my grass. Come cut my grass. I mean, I just started telling people, yep, you can come cut my grass. They're like, Oh, okay, cool. I'll come tomorrow. And I found that 
it does require work on my part, but I think once I d did it once or two times that people are like, oh, she actually wants me to help her. And then it was no longer them reaching out to me. I would just show up and our grass would already be cut. So people are wanting to help accept it. What did yeah. I not ask you about that you were wanting to share? And then we'll jump into our speed round. Yes. Um, I think one thing that I hear from a lot of parents, um, myself and three other moms have created, which will become a nonprofit in the next month. We're filling out the paperwork now, um, a, uh, a website called Navigating Special. And it is truly a place where families, um, it provides community, raises awareness, creates belonging, and just offering hope through sharing other people's disability journeys, uh, disability on all, all realms. Um, but anyway, one of the things that we just keep hearing over and over and over, and I felt this too, is when you leave the NICU, and then if you are a family that's going to get a diagnosis, like we do, all three of our kids now have some form of diagnosis. We're all still in therapies, you know, and we have a long road ahead of us in, in those things. There is no one person, one company, one doctor bridging the gap between NICU care. You go from such quality care to then you go home and it could be two years before you have the quality of care that you received in the NICU until you get the diagnosis. Um, and so it's like, who is that person that's telling you about therapies and the latest interventions and the surgeries and the medications that could really be pushing these babies from hey, we have a grade three bilateral brain bleed instead of getting a diagnosis at two and starting intensive therapies. Heck, let's get a diagnosis at eight months and let's start really, you know, going in on this. Like a lot of parents are feeling really frustrated about that. There's just a, there's a big hole of vacuum in yeah. between. I, I totally agree. There There is this um, hole and delay. Some of it is supposed to be filled by NICU follow-up clinics. Not everybody has a NICU follow-up clinic. Um, some of it is supposed to be filled by pediatricians who are supposed to be looking at babies at two and four and six months. But in all honesty, they're looking at the immunizations and the growth, and they're not necessarily going to notice the really subtle things that somebody like an mm -hmm. occupational therapist would notice. Um, 100%. And then some of it is early intervention and referrals for early intervention. But those are, even then, sometimes it's hard to get that process rolling. So for our unit, we refer to early intervention for anybody that's born less than a certain gestational age. They automatically mm -hmm. get an early intervention referral. But then that takes time to process through that but the early the reason it's called early intervention is because the earlier you do it the earlier it should happen um yeah and, and I, I have heard that frustration as well is that you feel like you're in this special cocoon in the NICU it's such a safe protected place and you have yes. great communication from service lines and you have access to your nurses and you get to talk to your neonatologist most of the time um and then you go home and you just feel alone um oh yeah 100%. and so clearly oh, there there is some need there that needs to be yes. that needs to be met that needs to be bridged um yes i was just gonna say in the emotional part as a mom of i've never cared for my babies by myself 
I mean, really stop and think about that for a moment. You know, I have never cared for my babies by myself, which is good and sad. Like you could look at a double-edged coin, but then you go home and you're like, I'm completely alone. I have a question. Like, what do, what do I do? I call my pediatrician. Oh my gosh. She might not get back to me for another 48 hours. You know, it it feels very isolating. Yeah, no, it, I think, I think that's isolating is a word that is appropriate for that, that -hmm. transition home from the NICU and boy, there's some needs there and perhaps we could brainstorm about ways that we could work. I could work with your organization as well to help bridge that gap because that would be, that would be great. Okay, you ready for the speed round? I'm ready. Okay, it's just super fun. Um, nothing, okay. nothing big. Okay. okay, so ten questions to round out the podcast, and then, um, and then I'll let you go. So, okay. if you had to choose a vacation, would you choose the beach or the mountains? Beach with a Corona with a lime and salt. Perfect. Yoga pants or jeans? Yoga pants. <laughs> Worst parenting advice anybody ever gave you? Oh, oh, worst parenting advice someone ever gave me? Oh, just give them some Benadryl. <laughs> yes, yes, just give them some Benadryl. Perfect. Um, favorite book that you've read recently? Ooh, I think I would have to say um, Just Mercy. Okay. Um, Country living or city living? Country living. The last show that you binge watched on Netflix? Uh, What was it called? Dream Hall Makeover? Oh, okay. What are you going to do this afternoon? I hopefully take a nap and do the baby's laundry and make some chicken noodle soup. Why did you decide to be a math teacher? Um, I always loved math. I was always in honors math, but it, I had to work for it. And I think when I finally went to school and like understood math, like from a teaching perspective, I was like, oh, like I got this. Like I want to help kids just get excited about math. Um, and it was really fun. I mean, I tell people all the time, I just felt like I was karaoke and all day. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And then last question, what are you grateful for today? I am grateful for the opportunity to be able that our story is not wasted, that hopefully somebody listening to this will say, hey, me too. Um, And then that me too will bring the sense of like, breathe out and breathe in. I am not alone. Um, So yeah. Yeah, I got this. I can do it. Well, I am super grateful for you coming on and sharing your podcast or sharing your story with the podcast. And um, it was really, really fun to talk to you. Yeah, it was good to meet you. You keep saying it, Walt. No, podcast.